Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. And welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith filling in for the very verbal Kevin Ray, who cannot be with us today, but we will continue on. Um, to my right, our special guest, again, as co-host, special co-host, is Richard Swan, my friend. You know, the more you're pushing special, you're making me think I need to take that short bus again, but you know. <laughs> It'll fit you perfectly okay. then. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, thank you again for coming out, helping me out, and especially for arranging our guests, because today's guest is uh, brought to by you. Yes, it is. I heard him at a... Um, at the Maple Hall downtown, it was the Knoxville History Project, I believe, is who um, invited you and had you. They do a lot to preserve history. And uh, Bob is with UT. Uh, he's with the History Department at UT and does okay. a great job. And we're going to get to our guests in just a minute, but let's tell everybody how we can plug in. The TheHousingHour.com is where the treasure trove of information is, and because this show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. So you'll see Mortgage Investors Group on the TheHousingHour.com. Um, but go there for all of our past customers, uh, for all the interviews and all the good stuff that we've got going on there. Plus, social media. We're hound dogs in that thing because we spend a lot on the social media group. So Facebook slash The Housing Hour at Twitter is at The Housing Hour and all the other ones in between. I don't know. But we've got a team behind us that pushes all that stuff out. So that's how you can interact with us. Check us out on the social media platforms. Interact with us because we had a good interaction on our guests um, a couple weeks ago with the book. Yes, Kyle Johnson. Kyle Johnson. Yeah, that was a great book and there was yep. a good interaction with him. And today we've got a similar guest. We've got an author, awesome. and, an author. And, a, and a historian, Dr. Bob Hutton from the University of Tennessee. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming out. So tell us exactly what your title is at the university. What do you do there? Well, I'm a senior lecturer in the University of uh, Tennessee's History Department. I also teach classes in what we call American Studies, which is uh, a little bit more general than history. Um, I've been there for, I've been a member of the faculty for 10 years now, and recently I've been working on a history of the university, because we need a new one. We need a new history. That's right. <laughs> were you right? History? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> Probably an updated one, I'm thinking, but well, there we, may be some portions that they would like to rewrite. But. I'm sure they would, yeah, and I'll be, uh, I'll be making sure to include those. Excellent. So, um, well, th- tell me what a senior lecturer means. Well, that means I'm a non-tenure track uh, uh, instructor in the university. Mm. And where now? What's your background? How did you get into this history thing? You look like a very young man. So thanks. Well, so. <laughs> um, I've been uh, interested in history my entire life. I studied history back at Appalachian State, and then I went on and got my doctorate at Vanderbilt. I like to remind people that around the UT campus, of course. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> it's impressive. Some like it more than others, and I've just been rolling ever since. Um, what? Uh, where did? Where were you born? I was born in Bristol on the Tennessee side. Okay. Yeah. So that's so your roots are up there because a lot of the history that I see from your page uh, at the University of Tennessee, it's kind of the Southern Appalachia, Appalachia type of history. So that's, that's kind right. of your your focus, your 
your passion? Oddly enough, most of the Appalachian historians you meet happen to be from Appalachia. Go figure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you might it, you might have some outsiders looking in and very critiquing. often, yeah, but it's, but it's not accurate. We typically call those revenueers, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> They're less interested in the history. So, thank you for stereotyping uh, that area for us. Yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> now, you'll notice I said we call those because yeah. I was born here. So, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, I know my father did building. He he built up in that area too. So, um, it, it's a it's a different different area some some are a little bit rougher than others sure um, you know you so. can say that about the great plains the pacific northwest and absolutely it. is the truth mm-hmm. but uh, let's start out talking a little bit about uh, the university of tennessee its history how it got started because i know that we're coming up on the the uh, 225 years yes we are that would be the qua qui centennial say that again qua qui centennial <laughs> Could you say that, Dr. Hutton? I'm not going to try to say it <laughs> when I'm being he, recorded. He refused to say that at the talk that I heard him at recently. He's like, I'm even not even going to try that. Well, how so, long did you practice that before you came on air? I just read it. Really? I've got a radio background. Oh, though, So, you know, as long oh, as something right. is phonetically listed for me, I can handle it. Okay. That's well, pretty that's, impressive. Well, that's that's why he's co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so, that helps us out immensely. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, because I know... Tennessee, uh, University of Tennessee, didn't start out as the University of Tennessee. So That's right. It history. started out as what we call Blunt College, which was named after the famous William Blunt, as in Blunt County, as in Bluntville. And it was uh, it started as a, what was probably a pretty informal little affair, a Presbyterian minister who lived on Gay Street who had a number of young people, uh, including Blunt's children, over to his parsonage to read some geometry or some ancient greek or you know the sort of classical learning one was expected to know during the enlightenment during the the 1700s and so um why he ended up naming it as a college um that's sort of what gets the ball rolling toward eventually becoming what we know as ut um fun fact we are not the first uh college west of the appalachian mountains that uh, distinction belongs to Transylvania College up in Lexington. Okay, but we were very close behind. Really? Yeah. And so, when Governor Blunt at the time, uh, he might have actually been senator by that point. I'd have to check. Okay. And uh, so, where did he hold the meetings? Was it in his house, right there in the the Blunt Mansion? No. Okay, I, I should clarify. This wasn't at Blunt's house. This was at the minister's house. A dude named gotcha. Samuel Carrick. And he lived very close to where our two theaters are now, the Bijou and the Tennessee Theater. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. No so, doubt some learning did take place at the Blunt Mansion as well, yeah. So I was over there. I mean, the Blunt Mansion is open to the public. You can go into. I, there may be a fee for going in. That's I, right. I, I think there is. But uh, we were over there once. Uh, I took my son over there uh, for an open house. And he looked down between the cracks right at the fence when you walk in and picked up a skeleton key between uh, the bricks. It was old, rusted skeleton key. So we kind of figured that was the front door of Blunt Mansion, and we took it in and gave it to the person there. Like, That's remarkable. Yeah, it was kind of remarkable that he could just reach down there and pick that up. But tell us a little bit about uh, you know other things because it started at Blunt in, in the late 1700s, 1794, and then where did it go from there? Well, it was basically under the control of Reverend Samuel Carrick for a number of years. Um, uh, once Tennessee became a state in 1796, there began some interest in actually financing a school via some sort of 
indirect state funding. In this case, it wouldn't have been direct cash. It would have been land grants. And so they started granting land to the school uh, just before 1810, not too long before the Reverend died. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that the school just sort of ceased to exist for nearly going on 10 to 12 years, during which a handful of members of the Board of Trustees continued to meet. And by the time um, East Tennessee College, as it was known by the 1820s, comes into being, Knoxville was no longer the capital of Tennessee. That had been moved to Nashville, and Knoxville would end up spending many decades in the shadow of other cities in this state. So it wasn't necessarily uh, a sure thing in the 1820s that East Tennessee College was going to ultimately become the state university. Hmm. So, because I know I'm not sure a lot of people know that Knoxville was the capital of the state for a, a brief period of time. A pretty brief period of time, yeah. So I know the street near Blunt is called Capitol Street. My understanding there was an old building on the corner of State and Capitol that may have been the capital. I Knoxville didn't expand much further north of that in those days. So yeah, that's a pretty good bet. Okay, yeah, because I've seen old pictures that people have claimed that that was the the capital. So. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. It's it's all right down there. So so where did it go from there? I think we just got a couple of minutes in this segment. Where did so. the capital go from there or yeah. where did the university? University go oh, from okay. there. Okay, because I was going to say the capital was in Murfreesboro for a yeah. short amount of time, too. Um, it continued and uh, became East Tennessee University uh, around 1840. It was generally understood by that point they needed to broaden their reach. Uh, there was a criticism in the late 1820s that the school was too exclusive that it was only for the young men who were from very wealthy families like the Blunts. And so uh, a few years after that, a number of new faculty and administration get the idea to just broaden their reach and make it more available to students of more uh, middle-class means or even even impoverished students. Was this, the, was this the trend across the country as far as university state-run or state concept, or do you know? That was actually a very rare thing, even as late as the 1830s. In fact, well into the late 1800s, public education is something that's just being gradually invented on the primary level, the secondary level, and certainly on the, on the college level. So in many ways, this thing called ETNC University is ahead of its time. That's amazing. So, yeah, and when we come back on the uh, other side of this break, um, and once Richard receives that phone call that you just heard. But, that wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's fine. Um, we're going to be back in on the housing hour talking to Dr. Hutton, who's going to give us all the history around this area in the University of Tennessee. Come back after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith in for Kevin Ray, who can't be with us, but Richard Swan, my special co-host, is here. Not going to say the right-handed guest co-host anymore. You're special. I like the right-handed guest co-host. Okay. So you're the right. And then on my right is my guest co-host. Richard Swan. And in studio with us is Dr. Bob Hutton. He is the Department uh, University of Tennessee Department of History and American Studies. And um, 
is giving us all the fascinating information of the history of kind of Tennessee, uh, the University of Tennessee. So we're, we're talking about, you know, past the 1820s now, the university has come on and is starting to get a foothold in it. Tell us a little bit about how we got to present day. Well, for one thing, there's uh, the massive construction, if you could call it massive, that takes place on the hill uh, in the late 1820s that sort of establishes what used to be called Barbara Hill as the hill. The hill. Yeah. Um, the uh, the old buildings known as uh, West College, East College, and Old College for many years were constructed very likely by enslaved people uh, in the 1820s and 1830s. And uh, the uh, for many years after that, and well into, I think, the early 20th century, people knew that hill as Barbara Hill because it was named after Barbara Blunt, the daughter of uh-huh. William Blunt, who had studied under Reverend Carrick way back in the 1790s. I see. So there's always a connection to the Blunts in some way. So that area was donated to the uh, the state of Tennessee for the university purposes from the Blunt family? Well, really, yeah, it was in a way it was granted by the state to the school. Um, I don't really remember the direct connection to the Blunt family, but I believe they did own some of that property. Probably mm-hmm. so. Um, explain the land grant, because um, Tennessee Land Grant Institution, you mentioned that. Explain what that is. Well, okay. It means two different things before and after the Civil War. Beforehand, it was uh, Congress granted a certain amount of land for the sake of education um, in the at the time of Tennessee statehood. For a long time, the state just did not allow the, you know, the, the, the school, I won't call it a university at that point, to use it for funding. And it would give it you know, very small amounts of land over the course of 20 years Land that at the time between 1810 and 1830 was gradually being taken away from the Overhill Cherokee, I should point out. Oh. Um, so that's how the school's being funded at that point. But and the, a lot of that came from, if I remember your talk last week, it came from when the state would sell that land that's right. to individual owners. That gave the state revenue. And then they would give that revenue, some of that back to colleges and things of that nature. Only so. problem was sometimes when that land was uh, lotteried off, there were people already living off of it who became more and more resentful of the fact that the school was, you know, teaching the richer folks while they were kind of left as, um, well, as um, people without land. Um mm-hmm. And, but then, you know, when we think of a land-grant school, that's something that develops during the Civil War with the Morrill Act that establishes federal funding via the sale of federal lands for a school in every state. Well, Tennessee, as you probably know, was the last state to secede in 1861 and the first state back in the Union in 1869. So it ends up being the first southern school to be allowed land-grant funding during Reconstruction. And through a series of uh, wonderful political struggles, it ends up being here in Knoxville rather than in Nashville or some other town in, in western Tennessee. Right, right. So, um, I mean, during all this time um, with all the presidents and, and those types of things, what I mean, you've been studying this. You're thinking about writing a book or in your, are you in the process? I am very close to the end, really. Really? Oh, yes. So... What kind of neat things have you discovered some, you know, some of the pearls that really have been overlooked over time? Well, I was impressed that what we called Blunt College was one of the first places to, to give some sort of semi-formal education to women. 
Um, oh, that's good. And uh, I would hesitate to say one of the first places in the United States because it began before Tennessee was a state. So whatever you want to call it in the pre-state era. Territory. Yeah, the territorial. Exactly, the territorial period. Um, that was very unusual in the 1700s and, and quite unique, especially in what would have become the South. Um I've found remarkable the situation of the school during the Civil War when they tried to hold classes up through 1862 and then suddenly realized that both faculty and students were just sort of going away, many of them joining Confederate forces, many of them joining Union forces, and the Board of Trustees somehow met every year, at least, I believe twice a year in some years, throughout the entirety of the war from 1861 through 1865, I think. That's, really? Yeah, Even during the siege of Knoxville? Well, they, they weren't having the meeting right during the siege. But, <laughs> uh, it wasn't the longest siege in history. But yeah, yeah, sometime during 1863, yeah, they managed to have a meeting. In fact, that's amazing. Uh, they're, at one point, they're asking the Confederate government in Richmond for help to money to repair these buildings because they've done damage to them. Later on, they're writing letters to the Union government asking them for money. To Did they get any? Campus. From either? Um, yeah, eventually by becoming a land grant school, that's what they get. Yeah. Okay, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, um, what was? I mean, during that period of time um, with the, the Civil War, this is post uh, Civil War Reconstruction period. Mm-hmm. What was the the political um, feeling of the? I mean, because I always heard growing up, Knoxville was conservative, Union favored, Union not really so much Confederate. What was your studies discussed? Uh, if you read Robert Tracy McKenzie's excellent book on living in Knoxville during the Civil War, he demonstrates that it was kind of probably something like a 60-40 divide. Really? I might be simplifying his argument. But anyway, it was a town with sentiments on both, favoring both sides. And uh, it was a city that somehow found a way to, uh, where the citizens found a way to coexist um, during Confederate occupation in the first two years and then Union occupation the last two and a half years, and um, the university sort of reflected that in many ways. Hmm. But, of course, after the war, it was generally understood and sometimes exaggerated that East Tennessee had been, to a man, uh, in favor of the Union. And so that was that helped uh, people like uh, William Brownlow and Andrew Johnson convince the federal government to place the land grant funding here in loyal East Tennessee rather than rebellious Nashville or <laughs> let alone Memphis. So that there was that had a lot to do with the political stratagem that yeah. eventually gave you know what we call uh, East Tennessee University land grant status and how it became the University of Tennessee around 1881. So some quick thinking political men yeah. found a good angle. That's right. Brownlow was a political uh, wizard, and Johnson was, uh, in, in every way except being president, he was pretty skilled, too. Right. And you see a lot of those names still on campus today, mm-hmm. um, people that were in a part of that history. Carrick, there was a Carrick dorm for years. Um, you Is there not see- anymore? There, there may still be. I, I, so. I haven't paid attention to a lot of the dorms on campus, but um, and then you had Estbrook Hall, which they just recently tore that building down. That's right, Joseph Estbrook, very important president. Yeah, and so you have a lot of things. You have a lot of ties into history of Knoxville. I think the third president was um, Dr. Charles Coffin. Mm-hmm. I think he was involved in 
acquiring or helping to acquire the 40 acres and you still have coffin shoes today in Knoxville. So yeah. you have a lot of ties to Knoxville, to the state, to the university, and those ties get intermingled back and forth throughout the years as people continue to support the university and, and have a lot of involvement and a lot of attempts to really promote that with legislators and with with our politicians, which is where some of the funding comes from, but not all of the funding that we would like to see goes to the university every time. So That's right. In fact, a true state allocation of funding didn't happen until the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, before that, it was mainly uh, the university using a certain amount of tuition, but also using a certain amount of federal land-grant money. Uh, but it's, it's really in the 20th century when the University of Tennessee, as we think of it, starts to become somewhat more recognizable. So, in, in, in your studies, anything else jump off the, the uh, history books to you that you struck you as being, you know, fascinating? I do think there, there's a, um, I'm, I'm, I may be somewhat prejudiced coming from the humanities, but there does seem to be an ongoing struggle between the social sciences and humanities end of things versus uh, science, technology, engineering, and math mm. that is reflected in some ways going back to the 1800s that perhaps... Uh, students would find familiar today. Really? So we got one minute. When we gonna, and I think that yeah. balance is important. The very. Because if you don't understand the purpose for improving society, for developing society's overall knowledge, overall mind, then you tend to key on one or the other. And I think it's important to have a knowledge of both. That's right. And and to build technology, but at the same time, support art, support music, support liter- literature. And when we come back on the other side of the break, I'm going to pick up on that point and then continue on because I've got a few questions there. This Good. is the Housing Hour, and we're with Dr. Hutton talking about history in the Knoxville area. We'll be back after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Back into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith. Check us out, thehousinghour.com, and Facebook slash the Housing Hour, Twitter at the Housing Hour, and all the other social media platforms. Grab this show, share it with neighbors and friends, especially loyal UT alumni. They probably love to hear some of this history that Dr. Bob Hutton is unwrapping for us and in the process of finishing his book on the history of Tennessee. And he's no uh, stranger to books. You've written another one. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. My first book was called Bloody Breath It, Politics and Violence in the Appalachian South. And it's, um, uh, I guess, a way of a book about debunking the old idea of quote unquote mountain feuds in the 19th century in eastern Kentucky. Oh, I see. The, yeah. the Hatfield and McCoys, those types of uh, stereotypes? They are the idiom. When people think of family feuds, of course, they go think of Hatfields and McCoys. But there's far of, uh, many other conflicts that were labeled feuds by the media in the 1800s. But you, uh, you, you, you titled it Politics and Violence. Right. It has a lot to do with the politics, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this was between 1860 and 1900. This was a very 
violent nation state we live in from one place to the other, from California to the American South to the, the industrial cities. And the manifestation of that violence that happened in places like eastern Tennessee or eastern Kentucky was often written off, and the way of writing it off was by using the word feud. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, take us, I mean, so obviously, I mean, you've, you've really become a, a very well studied in this geographical region of Appalachia, Southern Appalachia, into this area post uh, Civil War. How was Knoxville affected from the Civil War in those political, um, economical ways? Uh, was it impacted? Because I just get this picture that we weren't really touched. Everything was cool. Everybody was got along. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting the feeling that I've been mis, misinformed. I mean, if you if you compare it to the, the battles that took place uh, attempting to cap, capture Nashville or Franklin, oh, yeah. um, or for that matter, the, the various battles surrounding Chattanooga, Knoxville ends up looking relatively peaceful. But, of course, the, the Battle of Fort Sanders in November of 1863 was a very bloody affair, a very fast one as well. And one of the, one of the most... Um, uh, clear defeats of the Confederacy throughout the entire war. One of the 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 most um, rapid ones, you might say. Mm-hmm. So um, the the city did see its share of violence, but for the most part, what I've been able to find is the these uh, civilian citizenry uh, tried to sit the war out, and I think a lot of people tried to sit the war out. Hmm. And you know, so I'm looking when I started reading your your bio on the on the ut.ed uh something struck me it says here he's currently researching the private security industry in the progressive era appalachia oh wow yeah yeah and, and so it, i mean kind of hit me that this is all really connected i mean we're in the appalachia in the valley tennessee this area so post uh civil war up to the late 1800s we had a lot going on politically social economics everything Mm -hmm. you're in the era of the jim crow period of time and um jim crow economy that type of thing that's right we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the um knoxville i guess what one would call the attack on vine street it's been called the knoxville race riot but i believe it should be uh identified specifically as a mass violent attack on knoxville's black population in the summer of 1919 that was 1919. That's right. Okay, I, I was I didn't I had for, totally forgotten about that. I remember my grandfather talking about this. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so tell us what was going on because obviously your studies are in Southern Appalachia from from that region. Um, you you you're looking at Southern capitalism versus the Jim Crow era. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty heavy stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I like to think my students think so. I think I like to think that it's heavy enough. They it's important. Take it away too. with them. Yeah. Um, East Tennessee is often thought of as a part of the South that is unlike the rest of the South. Exactly. Uh, and in some ways that's true, and in some ways that's untrue. And we, we try to look at the ways that it's true and the ways that it's untrue and sort of um, how can we learn from both. So, okay, so give me a little bit of the taste of uh, what, what's untrue. I, I, I think of everybody so happy in Knoxville and stuff like that. But well, you know, during this period of time, Tennessee was a Jim Crow city for yes. sure. Okay, uh, and and it, it would have manifested itself differently than a a place like say Montgomery, Alabama, which right. was 
uh, an African-American majority city well into the 20th century, perhaps still is actually, uh, where it's actually a sort of minority rule via Jim Crow. While in Knoxville, um, around 1900, about, almost, from what I understand, about a third of the Knoxville population was African-American. So it was a sort of uh, Jim Crow rule against uh, a large minority. Um, so in, in many ways, that's a, a, a kind of um, overlooked element of the history of uh, race relations in the American South. Historians often tend to look toward the Deep South when, in fact, there's a lot to learn about from the Upper South as well. And that's what I'm trying to bring to the, uh, bring well, to the stage. I, I think it's important because one of the things I've always found interesting, and a lot of PBS on, on the Reconstruction period, yeah. uh, you know, there's been a lot of good stuff. Uh, Looking forward to watching that. Yeah, that is really, really good. And, and things that I don't think people realize is that things were good for the black family post-Civil uh, War, but then quickly deteriorated. You know, in 65, you know, so, I mean, they were given stats about, you know, ownership, land ownership. And then all of a sudden it started going down because of the Jim Crow or probably another something else was going on there in the in the um, in the in the later period in the in this equal but separate. This began began the, the Jim Crow era. Yes. Uh, I, you can't really put one moment when you can't really say there's one moment when Jim Crow begins. Um in Tennessee, actually, you know, even though Tennessee in many ways led the way when it came to black male participation in politics, it's also one of the first states to start uh, re, uh, reestablishing all white rule uh, not too long after 1869. Um, mm. Because, well, of course, Tennessee is a white majority state, unlike, say, Tennessee, uh, unlike, say, Mississippi, South Carolina or Louisiana. So the the story of Reconstruction in Tennessee is often um, left out of the larger picture just because it's in some ways kind of exceptional. Uh, but it's it also demonstrates that states themselves aren't necessarily always the best way of looking at history because if you look at our state, we're three states, aren't we? Right. It and, really are. It really are. Yeah. So it's in some ways it's very different than what I. I'm sure a Georgia historian could probably find a similar dynamic down there, but it's it's not quite as obvious as it is here. And so in, in a lot of ways, Middle Tennessee has its own story of the Reconstruction era. Western Tennessee certainly has its own story, beginning with the attack on black Memphians in 1866. And, of course, East Tennessee has its own story as being the, uh, the part of the state with the smallest African-American population, but yet at the same time a, an, a, a very long-existing, thriving one, too. Did it ever, was East Tennessee, Knoxville specifically, ever part of the progressive era, the progressive movement that occurred in the late 1800s? Or, or early 1900s, sure. There were the, you know, the, the various city managers and chamber of commerce types between 1900 and 1920 who saw a city that was growing out of control and and tried to bring about things like clean drinking water, paved streets. Oh, that's a good um, point. Some of the first regulations on whether or not you could have livestock in the city limits would have come about during the Progressive Era. Uh, you know, it was uh, an era that uh, one historian called a search for order. Hmm. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, urban growth, and Knoxville, being a city surrounded by countryside, has a lot of newcomers, including uh, my grandfather's family coming to Knoxville probably around 1910, for the first time. And 
there's in many ways kind of a clash of culture. And the the uh, the guys with the gold watches were trying to make it a more orderly, business-minded city at that point. Hmm. And you also have a lot of what has led to kind of the, the three grand divisions, so to speak, is East Tennessee is vastly different than Middle Tennessee, which is vastly different from West Tennessee. Oh, yeah. East Tennessee has... You know, a lot of water sources. It has a lot of mining capability. It had a lot of timber. It had a lot of um, other things, but it did not have just the large tracts of two and three thousand acre farms that existed more in Middle and West Tennessee, where the land is more fertile, more um, open to farming. So you get divisions that way, and then you get divisions because of politics and economy and 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 uh, of course the railroads had a huge advent in um, making Knoxville more prominent as well as you had railroads coming from the east over the mountains you had railroads coming north and south through Knoxville so that had a huge impact as well to get goods from the east coast out to the rest of the country that's right and when we come back on the other side of the break let's Take that and go forward because good road movement was an important part of the uh, economics in this area in the turn of the century. This is the Housing Hour. You're listening to Mark Griffith and Richard Swan and our guest, Dr. Hutton. We'll be back after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour, talking history in the Knoxville area, the University of Tennessee history. I'm with Richard Swan, who found our guest, who's my favorite guest this month, but uh, Dr. Hutton from Professor at University of Tennessee. Um, Tell us what else you're working on, because I know that you have some writings that are, are going to be published uh, this month. That's right. Uh, I have an article coming out in the Journal of Southern History in the May issue of this year. It's uh, entitled Sleuthing for Mr. Crow, colon, the William Baldwin and the Business of White Supremacy. And this was a, a piece that I did. <laughs> That's heavy. Yeah, it's a pretty heavy piece. Uh, for 10,000 words, it's a pretty heavy piece. Uh, it's a piece I wrote a few years ago, and... The Journal of Southern History is so exacting and precise when it comes to their editorial role that it has taken nearly four years to finally get it in print. Whoa. Yeah. It's it's no joke getting into the Journal of Southern History. So Well, congratulations. Of, thank you. This is one of my bucket lists. Wow. Yeah. Well, that is. I mean, that, and you, that's a good accomplishment. Thank and, you. And you're you're an author of a book, and this is your accomplished bucket list thing. I mean, I've been in a handful of journals over the years. You know, in academia, it is publish or perish, or sometimes it's publish and perish. But <laughs> uh, getting into one of my all-time favorite journals, um, actually, you know, with some friends of mine who work for it. Well, uh, it was very ple- it was a great pleasure, and it's such a simple topic. So I'm sure that was <laughs> exactly, <it>. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so that's kind of interesting that we were talking about that last segment because I did not know the topic of this. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about the content of this article. Oh, okay. Well, uh, have you ever seen the movie Mate One? No. Okay. Well, what, what, tell me again. The the movie Mate One. It was a John Sales movie in the late '80s yeah. about the so-called mine wars in West Virginia. 
Okay. Well, there were oh, a lot of mind wars. That's okay. right. Well, if you watch the movie, okay, the, the, the bad guys in, in Matewan are the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. Oh. And this, this is the war. Is this, this is ringing a, a bell? Yes, it is. Okay. And Where they um, opened up fire on the uh, striking, striking miners. miners. Yeah, a okay. number of times between, let's say, 1912 and 1921. Uh, that's what they're most famous for. I have seen this movie. I thought you maybe had. It's a, It was a very popular movie in the late 80s. Very violent. Same director who did Eight Men Out, which is another one of my favorite movies. Anyway, uh, I discovered a lot about the founders of this Mr. Baldwin and Mr. Feltz. And um, while they've been looked at many times in the context of the mine wars, I, I discovered that it, within their detective agency, they have a diverse number of interests. Before they got into... Um, quote-unquote, protecting the mines, they were uh, railroad detectives. And within, as in their role as railroad detectives, they were often found promoting the concept of the black male criminal aboard trains and uh, making sure to haul in as many um, African-American hobos as possible and getting it reported in the New York Times or the Wheeling Register or whatever newspapers. And so... The sort of the, the interplay between what we think of as labor history associated with the mine wars and the history of Jim Crow. I was trying to look at the sort of the Venn diagram overlap between those two histories that most people don't think of as being related. But if you were living in Bluefield, West Virginia, circa 1900, they're very much related. And that's what I wrote about. So, and also the role of the media, how the media absolutely. picks up these stories that may or may not be hundred percent factual that's right and runs with them and creates a narrative and and we see that today this was the era of yellow journalism in 1900 and you could see it manifested even on the local level yeah can you put in simple terms for me um the connection between the the mining wars and jim crow and the the um owner elites so okay. Put well, that in a little simple I, form. For I guess in uh, what I was trying to show in this in this article was that uh, a detective agency founded in Virginia, which was very known for being a Jim Crow state, became more famous with its operations in West Virginia, where uh, segregation and disenfranchisement were somewhat more muted. Um, I'm trying to demonstrate that there was a part one to this story when most people skip to part two, and that there's the tie between. The mine wars and racial segregation was via this particular business called the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. What year? What year uh, let's about? say between about 1885 and okay. 1915. I'm with you. All right. Yeah, because see, I was I'm thinking those wars were in the 1930s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I'm. Um. Yeah. That's what was throwing me. Okay. Yeah. So you still have um, union busting goons in the 1930s, but they're way more organized in the teens. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so this is part one of of the Jim Crow. Of That's how right. It, how it evolves. Yeah. I more, never more organized and probably less regulated or less oversight to prevent them from doing some of the stuff that that occurred. No oversight from the states. Certainly no oversight from the federal government. It's. I mean, we talk about the Wild West. We don't talk about the Wild South or the Wild Appalachia. But that's the situation one has going on during the railroad boom, circa. 1880 through 1900. Now, would you say that you're somewhat in a vacuum created by the Civil War and healing after the Civil War that allows some of this to go on unchecked as you're trying to kind of just move past conflict and 
ignore it to some extent? Or? There's no moving past conflict. There's a series of conflicts that take place for decades after the Civil War that um, the the federal government, after the end of Reconstruction, doesn't want to do anything about. But the construction of a white supremacist regime in many states um, from the Ohio River south, uh, you know, it takes different forms. And I'm trying to demonstrate a form that it happens to take in Appalachia, of all places. It's really surprising how little has been written about uh, Jim Crow in Appalachia. Yeah, but I mean, so when when I say something like the Jim Crow economy, yeah, I mean, so I, I, what I had pictured in my mind that as a result of the Jim Crow laws that evolved over a period of time, maybe abused and and then added to to make segregation more, um, uh, you know, harder treatment on the black family. Poll taxes and what have you. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, so all of this uh, had a, I mean, a, a beginning. So the, the Jim Crow economy, um, which can you explain? Can you explain to me what that would mean? The econ- Jim Crow economy. You- uh, well, okay, there is a relationship between Jim Crow and the Southern economy. And, right. I mean, if you ask someone who's a historian of the Deep South, they'll tell you the short answer is cotton. Right. And the short answer is sharecropping. Um, and exactly. and I think those those books have been written, and a lot of them are great. In fact, there's some really great recent ones. Um, what I'm trying to build, bring to the uh, bring to the scene is the fact that Jim Crow also played a role in the early industrial economy. What's going on? Labor. Yeah. Uh, what's going on among the the black and white workers on these railroads in these coal mines? Um, Jim Crow was often a very effective device for keeping them apart, for demonstrate, for trying to make sure that. Black and white workers didn't see any commonalities and only saw differences between each other. Otherwise, they were going to get together and strike. Right. And so, ultimately, Jim Crow is a great strike breaker. Um, I, I think uh, one of my friends who does the history of Alabama or Mississippi might um, have a different perspective on this because they're looking at a pre-industrial economy. And uh, you know, when does when exactly does industry come to come to a place like Mississippi. Well, it's been, you know, kind of in in the last 100 years. Well, this is a this is the industrial south I'm writing about, and it's somewhat different than what most people think of when they think of the Jim Crow era. Right. And, and I mean, and as far as that goes, I mean, so many things like you, you speak of the cotton, uh, the 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 difference between um uh white uh owners of multiple acres. Yeah. Rotating their crops properly, giving their soil time to refurbish versus uh, a share a 40 acres in a mule type guy that, you know, he's he plants out his crops and all of a sudden he's locked out. Mm -hmm. He can't he can't compete in the in the in the country. And between those two extremes, there were many variations of farms, too. Don't forget them. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. So uh, this would be a fascinating read. I think Um, I want to post this on the the housing hour or at at least a link. To the um, magazine. That'd be great. Journal of Southern History. Yes. Um, And Richard, do you have any other questions? We've got a minute. It's all been very fascinating. I love, of course, UT History. Um, I'm on the board of the local UTMI chapter. So um, you collect donation checks, don't you? It is wonderful to uh, hear about UT and to promote 
the diversity, uh, everything that goes on at the university, that it's, you've got technology, you've got human humanities, you've got um, literature, you've got all types of industries, and the more we learn, the better we are as a culture. There you go. And we've got a historian, Dr. Hutton, who is just bringing this all to a nice, easy, explained topic. There's nothing easy about it. It's very hard to <laughs> well, you, explain. Well, you've, you've made it easy with your research, and I'm sure I'm looking forward to the, the painting of the, uh, the uh, history of um, uh, University of Tennessee. You'll hear about it. I'll bring it back. Okay. Well, then, then it's a date. We'll, we'll have and you back on. the working on. title for that is Bearing the Torch. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. UT. Yeah, Bearing the Torch, colon, something, something, University of Tennessee. Well, thank you all very much, Richard. Thank you for bringing our guest, Dr. Hutton. Thank you very much for being on our show. I had a blast. Thehousinghour.com. Go check this out and get get this uh, podcast and share it with friends. We'll see you next week on The Housing Hour. That's The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.